there comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer, TGIF indeed. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour. Glad to be there, by the way. And we're happy always to be working with bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. He keeps us on an even keel. How are you doing, Benny? I'm doing all right there, Gary. Oh, wait, just one second. I must remove my mandatory mask. Oh, mandatory Yes, mandatory as of earlier this week for our fearless governor, which, uh, hey, you know, we got to do what we got to do. And so I apologize. You were a little, I was a little muffled there. But you know what? We're doing what we need to do. That's okay. Do, yeah. do you know that with 8,900 new cases right? overnight, Benny, Whew. they're still debating whether or not we should make those masks mandatory in I Florida. Know. I know. I could send you a few of Mars. <laughs> Yikes. Okay. Well, thanks for taking away my lead on the interview. We'll just go to the break oh, now. Gary, you'll get over it. You'll come up with something. Let's see. Throw away that page. And we'll come up with something else. Yeah, you're all or like. We'll circle back around. You're like, ah, oh, darn it. There that goes. All right. We are so fortunate once again to have Dr. Caroline Heldman with us. The lady is an esteemed professor and an internationally renowned pundit. Her academic residence is Occidental College in Los Angeles. I don't know how many times she's been on, but it's always a big deal when she is. I looked it up. We have been on air. This is our 14th year on air, and this is her 17th visit. Well, so you see. When you we go. can, we get her on. <laughs> nice job. 17. <laughs> I know. We get her on more than once a year when we can do it. So that's great. Why don't you give this lady her mad props and we'll get started. I'm going to give her abbreviated props because we want to talk to her. And I don't want to spend the whole hour, which I could do, just talking about her fantastic background. Her education is that she got a B.A. at Washington State University. Woo, and go her Cougs. Go Cougs. M.A. Ph.D. at Rutgers University. She's has published in the top journals in her field and co-authored Rethinking Madam President. Are we ready for a woman in the White House? Prior to teaching at Occidental College, Heldman taught at Whittier College, Fairfield University, and Rutgers University. She's also been active in real-world politics as a congressional staffer, campaign manager, campaign consultant, and political activist. She drove to New Orleans to help rebuild the city after Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast in 2005, and she's returned since. She's held positions in leadership with Common Ground, a New Orleans-based grassroots relief organization, and is the co-founder of Critical Response, a group that provides volunteers to engage in high-risk rescue efforts during crises and disasters. That is really just the tip of the iceberg. We are so thrilled to have her on for the 17th time today. Welcome to Manson Mitchell, Caroline Heldman. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Suzanne and Gary. Uh, glad to be on. I can't believe it's been 17 times, but here we are. <laughs> I can't either, but I counted them all up. I had to I believe use you. not only my fingers, but my toes. There you go. <laughs> 
Caroline, we talked at the outset that we were dropping some numbers. I believe the statistic yesterday, if I am precise, 5,004 new cases in Florida, where Suzanne and I reside. Today, 8,900 additional new cases. I believe that's a brand new Florida record, hardly one, hardly one of which we would be proud. I bring these statistics to you, Caroline, because it seems to me that if Donald Trump had anything like a policy for combating a pandemic the likes of which we have never seen, whatever we say about that initial drive to try to stem the tide of the coronavirus, is it fair to say today that his policy, such as it is, has collapsed? Well, yeah. I mean, as much as he ever had one, right? So this is this is a man who waited 71 days to take effective action. And people who support him will push back and say, no, no, he put a ban on, on travel from China. But it wasn't enforced. 40, over 40,000 people came in from China after he put that ban in. Um, so, yeah, this is a man who has not had a, a national policy. And in the wake of that, in, in the wake of his um, lack of a coherent response, right, I'm going to have a task force. No, I'm not going to have a task force. Should we wear masks? Even the, the science is very clear on that. Um, and then he bullies reporters and says it's it's being PC. The mixed messages coming from the White House from the start and his lack of response uh, have certainly cost tens of thousands of Americans their lives. And I'm not just saying this as a matter of opinion. There are now two studies that find uh, that had we simply responded earlier, a week earlier, and locked things down that tens of thousands of lives would have been saved. And there's another study that looks comparatively at what other countries did who were hit at the same time that we were hit and their responses. And if you look at it and you control for um, the, the size difference in our country, which has about 330 million people versus most European countries um, that have far fewer, um, you know, a fraction of that, but when you control for size, um, it is very clear that our response has been awful and that tens of thousands of Americans have unnecessarily lost their lives simply because we didn't have leadership from the top. And I would go a step further and say um, that it's also a partisan issue in two other ways, uh, unfortunately. Like we, we know that once we get to the end of this, um, that Republicans uh, will have died at higher rates simply because their leaders and their media officials on the right, in the right wing um, have been telling them to not engage in basic safety procedures and, in fact, to dismiss the virus as a hoax early on. And, and even today, some of the pundits are still saying that. But we know that Republicans are doing a few things that Democrats uh, are, are more likely to do a few things um, than Democrats. One is um, they're more likely to go out in public without a mask. The second thing is that they're more likely to go out in public. The third thing is that they're more likely to go out in public and not engage in social distancing. Um, and as a result of those actions, um, it puts them at a higher risk. And so it is no surprise the study came out yesterday that found that if you uh, were an avid viewer, the more you watch Sean Hannity's show, and Sean was dismissing this for months and months, um, the more likely you were to live uh, in an area with high COVID rates. So it's not just kind of theoretical at this point, the fact that Republicans have made this a partisan issue means that Republicans are, are at a higher risk of passing away from this pandemic. And, and in that sense, it's, the response federally has been a nightmare, but the fact that it's been a partisan response and put Republicans at greater danger, um, it, it's just, 
it's awful and ridiculous and just shows you where we are in, in terms of our politics, um, that the kind of insanity of partisanship is superseding health, safety, and science. Uh, in addition to that, Caroline, not just looking backward, but looking forward, there is no uh, signs right now that we are heading in a downward direction, and the the numbers of anticipated deaths just keep going up and up with each new study because we are not doing the things that we need to do to get those numbers to go down. And so the death rate is anticipated to continue climbing. Indeed, Suzanne. So we've lost 100, at least, conservative estimate, 126,000 Americans. We are not yet out of our first wave. People are talking about a second wave, but we're not out of our first. And in fact, um, in, in many states across the U.S., the numbers are now rapidly increasing. Um, and, and those states were predictable, right? So it's states that either didn't close or opened too early. Arizona, Florida, South Carolina, Arkansas, and Texas have all seen an increase of 42% since Memorial Day, and that, that's a very significant increase. Um, we know that, that in Houston, uh, yesterday we got a report that the ICU beds in Houston are full. Um, in Arizona, it is the rates are climbing faster percentage-wise than they ever did in New York City. Um, I mean, it is just absolutely out of control in that state. So these are states that, that either didn't close, didn't enforce basic safety procedures or open too early. I would argue that California, even though we're, we're lower down in terms of um, kind of the severity of the rise, we opened um, too early. We now have bars and restaurants open um, and, and salons and other high-risk areas open. Um, and it, it's really unfortunate that we have some political leaders who are putting um, basically, you know, putting the economy above grandma and grandpa. Um, and we had leaders saying this early on, right? We had uh, Dan Patrick in the, in, in the state of Texas saying, well, yeah, I think, you know, I, I would be willing to sacrifice for the economy. I'm an older person. I would be willing to sacrifice for the economy. So he said out loud what a lot of policymakers are acting upon and not saying out loud, which is that we are prioritizing the economy um, and I would argue the pockets of, you know, corporations and very wealthy individuals uh, over the health and safety of, of older people and people who are immunocompromised and at greater risk for this. And uh, we will look back at this as an unconscionable moment in American politics. An unconscionable moment in American politics, yes. And in that regard, yesterday... I did a dumb thing. I got on Facebook and started reading some debate about whether or not to wear a mask. I really know better than to get my blood pressure up like this. And I resisted jumping into the fray. So at least I, I was that smart. But one of my Facebook friends said that she wears a mask, but she's self-conscious about it. And so she wears it most of the time, but not necessarily all the time. She doesn't want to be a problem for anyone, but she's still pretty nervous about going out in the open with COVID-19 being spread around. And people offered their various responses, one of which came from a young gentleman who said, I think this shows that people are starting to wake up to the fact that COVID-19 is a nothing burger. And I was so tempted to reply to him saying, there are 
well over 120,000 people and counting who won't be waking up at all. And Donald Trump it, counts on these people for votes. It's a kind of practiced yeah. and determined ignorance. It's a willful sort of ignorance that constitutes a lot of Donald Trump's base. No, Gary, that's a really good point. And I think for people, for a lot of, of listeners, that might be shocking. Um, but I monitor and follow right-wing news. And if you're in that world, you're actually receiving completely different non-science or anti-science-based information. And in that world, you're being told um, that it's a nothing burger, that it, you know, the rates of death look similar to the common cold. None of this is true, by the way. Um, we don't have uh, good, good figures on the spread and, and the deadliness of this, but we know that it spreads, we do know that it spreads more quickly than the common cold and it's far more deadly, and that we don't have a vaccine. Um, and that that's at least a year out, right? So all of those things, if you're, if you're grounded in science, this is what you know. If you're grounded in science, you also know that it is spread through shedding and that masks uh, greatly reduce the likelihood of shedding uh, the virus on others or in spaces where it can live some, on some surfaces for days. Um, social distancing does the same. And yet, if you live in that world, if you live in the world of Trump, then not only are, are you thinking that it's a hoax and, and downplaying it um, and downplaying all of these safety procedures, you may even be buying into the lie that somehow masks are dangerous to wear, um, that I've heard. I've seen a lot of that on the right wing, that somehow it reduces it. I, in fact, I'm not even going to repeat. I'm not going to repeat it. I'm not going to give it any power. But people are, you know, even, even those sorts of damaging lies are going around. And so in some sense, um, you know, it, it's heartbreaking that they're not able, that Trump's followers um, are not able to sift through fact versus is versus this sort of myth that's being put out. And it's not just him. It's GOP leaders at the state level. It's talking head pundits who are constantly downplaying it. Um, it's people, uh, it organized campaigns on Facebook. I've found that I'm being targeted uh, certainly by organized campaigns that are just, you know, very very um, gently putting out misinformation about COVID-19. And at the end of the day, uh, Trump has also made this a hyper-masculine thing, right? So we know that um, he, that, you know, Joe Rogan has uh, said that wearing masks are for uh, men who are not real men. Um, we know that Donald Trump has played upon the, the mask, you know, the macho-ness of not wearing a mask. Um, so at the end of the day, we actually see a big gender gap in terms of men being less likely to wear masks and in fact, here's the most surprising stat. One study uh, found that the more men were afraid of the virus, the less likely they were to take part in basic safety precautions like social distancing and mask wearing. This idea that the more they feel vulnerable from the virus, the more they kind of perform their invulnerability in ways that put them at, at risk. So it is no surprise um, that men are dying at higher rates from COVID-19 than women. That's not the only factor but this kind of ridiculous, toxic hypermasculinity that's coming from the White House down uh, is playing a role in, in, in these deaths. Wow. I'm just, I'm like, wow. Yeah. I, it's know. astonishing. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the thing that, that really makes no sense to me, and, and maybe it never will, Caroline, is if, if the idea of mask wearing or safety regarding COVID-19 is now a political divide, then 
the party that would like to remain in power is going to be losing the majority of its folks. They, yeah, it, it's strange. They, uh, Republicans will certainly, um, there, there will be a partisan death rate. I can say this with a degree of certainty. And, and I don't know what it will be, but this is how I know. I know because uh, the um, states where uh, Republicans have failed to respond properly, um, their rates are going up, and that means higher numbers. Um, I know that Republicans are less likely to engage in social distancing and from GPS tracking, which is a little scary big brother. We know that they're, they're out more than Democrats, and that puts you at a greater risk. So if you look at the basic behavior, you know that it's going to lead to a partisan death rate. And the question is how, how much it is going to affect Republicans. But I, I don't know. I've never had a, met a, a major political party or studied a major political party that has put its own members at such risk. And that's really what I'm saying. You're, yeah, Gary has said uh, many times before, and, and we've heard this from uh, other people that we've talked to, is that people are acting against their own interests and they don't see it. They don't see that what they're doing, the, the legislation that they're putting in place and the things that they're doing are actually working against themselves and are not for their own survival and thriving and good health. And that just makes no sense at all. Amen, Suzanne. I mean, exactly that. It makes no sense. They're working against their own self-interest and the self-interest of their families in order to follow a political leader. Um, it smacks of, of cult-like tendencies, to be frank. It, it's really disturbing. And I think that Trump has been able to get away with a lot of this and misinformation and acting like it's not a problem because it's taken so much longer for COVID-19 to reach rural places. But I will make a prediction that between now and the election and now and the end of the year, um, the virus is now moving into rural areas. And the rural healthcare system is notoriously underfunded and, and understaffed. And so I think the only thing that gets through to some Trump supporters who are diehards in, in not taking this pandemic seriously, is when they are personally affected. It, you see it all the time on social media. You know, the first series of, of 10 or 15 Facebook posts or tweets saying this is, you know, this isn't, this is a hoax, this isn't a real thing. And then the follow-up that says, oh, my grandma just died, or oh, now I have COVID-19 and I barely survived. Um, so I would guess that as it moves further out into rural areas, People will see for themselves that it is affecting them and their families personally. Um, and I would anticipate that some Republicans would have a change of heart about you know, believing in basic science at that point. That is absolutely true. I perceive it the same way, Caroline. And I also, when it comes to these rural hospitals, and by the way, Mississippi is anticipating being overwhelmed within the next two to three weeks. State health officials are saying, we are not prepared for what's coming with this upsurge, never mind a second wave, we haven't gotten past the first wave and Mississippi is in trouble, as are so many other states, so many other red states particularly. If you are living near a rural hospital, that's where you go for your acute health care. Do people stop and think that maybe you don't get COVID-19? You're one of the lucky ones. And that's maybe if you're not even wearing a mask and you don't get it. What happens if you have a heart attack on a Saturday night, and there's no ICU bed available 
And why is that? Because of the rush of COVID-19 cases and the need to care for those people. What do you do then? Yes, Gary, good point that it, these the rural hospital systems will be overwhelmed um, with COVID cases, uh, and that will definitely have an effect on, on the other types of services they can provide. Um, yeah, if you have an emergency, and, and this is certainly already the case even in non-rural areas, right, in, in urban and suburban areas where um, people are, well, first off, thankfully, um, fewer accidents are happening because people are in their homes, so fewer car accidents, for example, but also fewer accidents overall. But also people are not going in at the same rate for things that they may have gone in for in the past, um, which is good in the sense that it, it might keep some beds open. But as you're pointing out, for some things you have to go in, like a heart attack. There's, you don't have a choice if you want to live. And so it's not just COVID-19 deaths that will go up if our hospital systems are overwhelmed in rural areas. I look at that with with astonishment, and I should mention our hearts go out to the people in Yakima Valley. They're in the state of Washington in Yakima. They are now being overwhelmed, and they're airlifting people whenever possible to hospitals that have the capacity to handle them. So it's it's in real time now. Absolutely, and it's also happening on um, in Native American reservations, right? Um, the, the death rates, a uh, huge disparity in both uh, death rates for Native Americans, especially those who are, who are in reservations. And one study done in New Mexico found, finds that it's about 30% higher, um, and also black Americans. Um, and we know that the causes are very similar for both, um, but for black Americans, it's been perhaps studied more. And the data is very clear that black Americans are high, uh, dying at much higher rates from COVID-19 um, for, for three primary reasons. One, um, because of structural and systemic historical racism, they are less likely to be covered by health care. Um, the second reason is that when they go in, they're not diagnosed um, at the same rate, so they're turned away uh, as though it's not COVID-19 at higher rates than white Americans. And the third reason is that the, the care that they um, receive, um, it, they, they're in, a, in a higher risk categories because of the systemic racism um, and, you know, a lifelong of, uh, experience of microaggressions, which has very profound physical effects on one's health, um, that they're going in with a greater likelihood of, of being sicker in other ways, which puts them at a higher risk. So um, we, we need to look at our health care system. We need to look at the fact that our health care system is failing black Americans, is failing Native Americans, and in general is failing poor people. Um, it, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, how can we say that we, we are providing for life when we don't have universal health care? Gary was telling me this morning, I, I believe, Gary, that, um, or did I hear it on the television, that there is um, something coming from the White House to the Supreme Court uh, to finally eliminate the uh, Oh, yeah. Obamacare. At Trump's request, you know, let's finally kill the ACA. He's determined to not leave office without destroying ACA, without any alternative plan, and without providing any coverage for those with pre-existing conditions, protestations to the contrary. Well, and this ties in with what Suzanne was saying earlier. He is calling, his administration is calling for to uh, kick millions of Americans off of their existing health care plan during a pandemic. How, how is this his election plan? I don't understand 
why it's so hard for him to see. This is Donald Trump I'm speaking to. Why it's so hard for him to see that simply doing his job is his best reelection plan. Simply doing his job as a leader during a pandemic. And that would involve not, you know, condemning a certain percentage of, of your followers to death because you're misinforming them about the risks that they face. And so they're engaging in activities that are high risk. And it, it would also mean that you don't cut their health care um, during this pandemic. I mean, it, it really is quite Orwellian. And I, I don't understand what his strategy is, and I don't understand what the strategy of the Republican Party is, um, because this is it's simply not a good reelection strategy for Donald Trump. You know, from my point of view, it just looks like people are falling on their swords. You know, it's it's like I'm saying now, is it possible that none of these people really care about getting elected? Are they so out of touch with what the majority of the people want that they're willing to go down this path, which is not going to get them elected, reelected? I mean, that's what it looks like from one point of view. Yeah, I mean, certainly they're weighing, I, I think, at the at the gubernatorial level, they're weighing the people who write them checks to get reelected and their interests, and these are corporations and wealthy donors, um, they're weighing those concerns against the voters whom they're supposed to represent. So I think in a fundamental way, this this reflects a problem with our democracy, which is whose interests are served when you have such a high amount of corporate money in politics. Um, when you have a high, when when your campaigns, your reelection, and your initial bids for public office are primarily bankrolled by corporations, during a pandemic, it becomes very clear that if you put the economy and corporations above the lives of humans, that you are not doing your job. And I would argue that while it makes it, you know, the pandemic is is making the problem of money and politics very clear. This is actually yeah. happening, you know, by a thousand different cuts in lots of different ways. So corporate interests are constantly being put above the interests of private individuals whom public leaders are supposed to represent, but it's not often that we see it in such stark terms. Do you do you anticipate there would ever be a point in time where Citizens United could be overturned? I think I have hope um, that the court will be restored to sanity, and I say that because in 2010 when the court passed it, um, said that you know corporations were people um, and that their voice in politics is just is, is a matter of, of First Amendment rights, right? Freedom of speech, being able to speak, and this is political speech. That was such a, a, a fundamentally flawed ruling, according to how our framers set up the government. Um, they essentially took this idea that our framers had um, that all of these interests would compete in the political arena and therefore no interests would dominate. Um, they they just uh, adulterated that and said this particular interest, i.e. corporate interest, uh, can dominate the political process. So I do have faith that that can be shifted, but it what it would require is a rather immediate restoration of our American democracy, and that would require, because I do think it is imperiled, we are not following checks and balances, we are not following the rule of law. We have uh, an attorney general, um, Barr, who is um, allowing Donald Trump to violate both norms of the office and also the Constitution itself through the emoluments clause, through uh, overriding uh, policies that are passed by Congress uh, through a variety of things, right? So he is, Barr is, 
co-signing Donald Trump's violation of the Constitution. And what we need to do immediately is restore that order. And I would, at this point, vote for the gum on my shoe. Joe Biden is the candidate. We, um, in, in order to restore the courts, would need to elect someone other than Donald Trump to the office of the presidency, um, probably Biden, uh, in, in November. And then uh, two Supreme Court justices would either have to step down or leave through other means. Um, and that would restore the balance of the court if you had a Democrat who appointed some moderate uh, thinkers on the court. I think that uh, that's a really long response to, I think we could restore a lot of what's been chipped away at in the last few years um, as a result of Donald Trump passing ridiculous policies that violate the Constitution or doing things that violate the Constitution and then having Bob Barr and the Supreme Court back him up. I want to extend this for another minute or two, because even though it's break time, I just want to get this in. Caroline, I love what you just said. That was so well laid out. It occurs to me about every day that Donald Trump, being the great businessman that he is, he said sarcastically, he is making a full-on attempt to turn the other two branches of the federal government into a subsidiary of his personal business and his personal interests such that he is trying to identify the American government as being incorporated within his person. And when I see something like that go on, democracy does die in that kind of darkness, especially if millions and millions of us refuse to wake up to what's going on. Yeah, Gary, it sounds alarmist, but you know who the most alarmed people are right now in my profession? The historians. Um, especially those who study the founding. Uh, I myself study and teach the Constitution in the founding, and this Donald Trump is the framers' worst nightmare. He is has business entanglements that he is using. He's using the office to act uh, to um, actively enrich himself through the emoluments clause. He has engaged in impeachable offenses, even though the other you know even though the Senate refused to do their job and hold him accountable. For impeachable offenses, but when you collude or you operate with another government in order to uh, influence or affect an, a U.S. election, that is an impeachable offense. There is no doubt about it. And if you look at, at the process that happened and then the new you know, information that came out last week, um, that he actively knew about the WikiLeaks. He actively knew about what everything that was going to happen during the campaign. Um, you can't turn your back on that. That is a violation of the Constitution. So even though the Senate didn't do their job in holding him accountable because partisanship now supersedes our democracy, um, this is a man who is dangerous to our democracy. He is dangerous to the Constitution. He is a threat um, to our the very way in which our nation has existed for 240 years. And my biggest concern is that I don't think, if let's say we have a free and fair election and he is voted out, I don't think it's going to be a peaceful transition of power. And that would be the first time since we started this grand experiment known as the United States of America. On that note, let us take our one and only break of the hour. We are talking to Dr. Caroline Heldman of Occidental College. We're going to get back into politics, of course, and a different set of issues when we come back. Give us a couple of minutes, then more of Manson Mitchell at Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. 
staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. What's one of your favorite memories? Hmm, let's see. Well, there was this one time I went snorkeling in the Caribbean when I was a kid. It really just blew my mind. I mean, when you're sitting on the beach, it's so peaceful and you sort of forget there's a whole other world under there just full of all kinds of life. We saw the most beautiful corals. I remember thinking they were waving at us as they moved with the ocean. And then there were all these amazing fish. They kind of reminded me of tropical birds. They were so bright and colorful, just darting all over the place like birds in the sky. I'll never forget it. It completely changed the way I look at the ocean. Most of us have a memory of being in nature we'll never forget. Let's protect the world's natural places so more memories can be made for generations to come. Visit worldwildlife.org. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcome our favorite political pundit, Caroline Heldman of Occidental College, for a deep dive into issues of our times. On Saturday, Marie D. Jones discusses her latest book, Earth Magic, an encyclopedia of natural remedies for whatever ails you. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Conversation you won't find on the rest of the dial. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest, Dr. Caroline Heldman, Professor Caroline Heldman. Uh, Professor Heldman, if people would like to find out more about you, your book, your website, where is a good place for them to go? I am at Caroline Heldman on all the social media channels, even TikTok. Um, I mean, don't expect great videos or anything, just cat videos and squirrel videos mostly, uh, but I can be found. It just type my name, Caroline Heldman, in, um, and that will also pull up my blog. Okay, very good. Uh, I don't know where you were going to head, but I've got a quick question, Gare. Please. Uh, you wrote the book, and I, I don't have a year that you wrote it, Rethinking Madam President, Are We Ready for a Woman in the White House? And I, I specifically wanted to include that in your bio today because of the promise that Joe Biden has made to have a, a woman VP candidate. 
Um, and then further, a number of people saying that they hope it will be a woman of color. And then on top of that is the idea that he may or may not be going for eight years. He may decide to to uh, to just uh, you know go four years and and not uh, go for re-election. So, what is your thinking about having a woman in the White House here in 2020? Well, I the book I first published back in 2007 basically predicted that Hillary Clinton would not fare well. Um, and we recently came out with an, a new uh, Madam President question mark, which looks at the, the research from the past 10 years and finds that women still face incredible barriers to the office, right? And in fact, 130 women have officially put their name in to run for the presidency. Um, you've never heard of them. 12 have made national bids, serious national bids for the presidency. You haven't heard of most of them, but they all face the same barriers, uh, those barriers being that uh, media didn't take them seriously and treated them as, you know, kind of uh, joke um, candidates. And then when we started treating them more seriously, starting with Elizabeth Dole in the 2000 race, uh, they were still, uh, media still covers them as being, uh, you know, lightweight candidates, less issue-oriented candidates, uh, focused on their dress and appearance and sexualizing them. Um, and so all of these things that really harm the ways in which we think of women as being good leaders. Um, also, uh, in, in the most recent book, I really dig into how masculinity is really tied in with the presidency. And we certainly see this with Donald Trump, but we actually see it with all male candidates. So it's not just Donald Trump who says, you know, basically, be a man, don't wear a mask. And it's not just Donald Trump who introduces hand size, uh, wink, wink, during the, the Republican primary even when you have two men running for the office, they try to feminize each other in order to be more masculine. So, for example, John Kerry, we talked about his, his Botox and his, you know, getting his nails done, and John Edwards, um, you know, getting his fancy haircuts, or even, you know, Michael Dukakis, who's not, quote-unquote, man enough to wear the helmet back in 1988. So even when two men are running in this race, it's always, you know, a, a hyper-masculine contest, and so imagine how difficult it is for women to get there. And so this is a long way of responding to your question, Suzanne, about uh, Joe Biden picking a woman VP and then only staying in for four years. This could be kind of the backdoor way of getting a woman into the White House. And I think that when she gets in, similar to our first black president, um, she will face double standards. She will be criticized more harshly um, for doing the same things that white men would do. Um, and But at the end of the day, it will normalize women in that position in a way that will inspire a generation of girls to run and inspire a generation of Americans to be more accepting of women holding that office. Would you care to name like who you think the top three possibilities are for Biden? Do you have a sense about that? I think it's Elizabeth Warren, Stacey Abrams, and Kamala Harris. Um, I just basing that on the fact that it went from seven down to a smaller number, and we don't really know what that smaller number is, but we know that Amy Klobuchar is no longer in that, the race. I right. would love to see a woman of color. I would love to see Kamala Harris or Stacey Abrams. Um, I think Elizabeth Warren is uh, the most competent candidate we've ever had for the presidency, so it would be nice to see her in for another reason. Um, but, uh, you know, I jokingly referred earlier to voting for the gum on my shoe over, you know, anyone but Donald Trump, and I think that's where a lot of 
Democrats, independents, and even some Republicans are. Um, so I would be just having a woman in the number two position um, would be a tremendous step forward for representative democracy. I've said to Gary that uh, for many, many months that there has to be a woman candidate, has to, has to, has to. More recently, I said, if it's a woman of color, he's just about a shoe-in. So I, I think to really get out, and, and maybe with all the protests, maybe not so much, but there was a point in time when I felt like um, Biden would would certainly run away with it with a um, with a woman of color VP. Would I you, would, would you, agree. Yeah, I would agree with you very much, Suzanne. In fact, I think that Hillary Clinton missed a great opportunity um, to a point of well, I guess think her best bet would have been a man of color um, in 2016. Uh, because of the bias against women, I think putting two women on the ticket would have would have amplified that bias. But had she put a woman, uh, a man of color on the ticket in 2016, it would have tapped much more into the Obama coalition. And the Obama coalition is a racially diverse coalition of highly enthused people of color and enough white women um, and some white men uh, to to carry it. And at the end of the day, like black women turn out to vote at incredibly high rates. Um, and they are more enthusiastic about democratic politics than any other constituency in the party. And so I think it's a good kind of rule for candidates to pitch at black women voters. What would they like? Uh, because at the end of the day, if you can win them over, then you have a much greater shot of having an energized coalition. Thank you. I would like to shift gears and talk about another burning issue, Caroline, and that is bad policing, police brutality, and the idea of systemic racism. And that's where I get into this in terms of asking you about it, Caroline, because people of color want us to, they really want us to get, and they're, they're demonstrating, and yes, there have been violent episodes, as well as many, many more peaceful demonstrations, indicating that we have a four alarm fire of a national emergency going in terms of not only bad policing, but systemic racism. The counterpoint to that that I see or hear about every day is all lives matter. And yes, you have a few bad apples on most police forces. You're going to have that. It's in human nature. And maybe some of these people shouldn't be on the police force. But by and large, these cops are great, and we need to stand behind the men on the thin blue line. It seems to me to be such a chasm, Caroline, that I don't know how that gets translated into policy. And at the moment, Congress doesn't know either. Well, we certainly have a problem that we can identify for people who are interested in, you know, facts. <laughs> um, our issue with, with policing is that 38% of Americans are people of color, and their experiences with police look radically different than white Americans' experiences with police. And I'm making some generalizations here, but they're, they're borne out by data. So I view the police primarily as, you know, people I would call when something is wrong, and I wouldn't imagine that I, I wouldn't call them, right? 
Uh, for people of color, it's quite the opposite, for many people of color. And it's not just black Americans, although I, I really want to make a point that it is important right now that we center black experiences and black pain. Um, it is not just black people, though, who are being profiled and murdered by police. Um, in Los Angeles County, for example, that the numbers look similar for Latinx uh, people as black people. So if the if if almost 40% of the population views law enforcement in a profoundly different way, it means they're having a different experience of democracy, right? Because we're supposed to be protected. We're not supposed to be preyed upon by the state. This is a violation of civil liberties. Civil liberties are the freedom from government interference in your life, right? So at a fundamental democratic level, if police are targeting, disproportionately targeting people of color for violence and black people in particular, um, then it is a violation of our democratic contract. It is a violation of what we are as a nation. And so we know, just looking at the data, that um, black men are uh, three times more likely to be murdered by police than white men. Uh, for Latinx men, it's twice as likely as white men. And it's not really a surprise. And if you look back at when you know, local law enforcement started, um, we've had a 400-year problem of uh, enslaving, abusing, and murdering black Americans. And so um, when we abolished slavery formally with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the uh, slave patrols that have been used for a very long time in our country turned into local law enforcement. So it is no surprise that they are uh, continuing, that, that we have this legacy. It's baked into policing that they are targeting people of color. Um, so if you if you look at it, the racial inequality by design and then look at the data today, it is very clear that if we care about democracy and our fellow citizens having the same experience that we do in democracy as white people, then we need a different system. And then if you look at the data, for example, in Camden, where you, you engage in something that's been called defunding the police, that is not the same thing as abolishing the police, but rather moving money away from police budgets into budgets that actually prevent the need for policing, like social services and health care and welfare checks, and you, you actually send out social workers or addiction experts instead of police to manage situations involving mental health issues and addiction issues, you actually see crime rates go down significantly. So if you look at the cities that have done this, um, we actually have a model for the nation. We just need to follow, we just need to have the courage to follow that model. I think when you when you speak about that, wow, Caroline, I, I think particularly about domestic violence, if there was another way of bringing intervention effectively without involving the police, at least as the first resort, I would love to see that happen because you ask any cop on the beat and they will tell you that they would really rather not intervene in a domestic violence situation because they know in all probability that and most of the time it's going to be we know that it's going to be the wife or the girlfriend being physically abused she will out of fear absolute terror for her own life she will go so far as to physically assault police officers to protect her abuser we have to find a way to break through that for one thing we'd have fewer dead cops and we'd also find a way to help these victims by conflict resolution, whatever that may require, short of police force. Well, and I was speaking as uh, someone who's worked in the advocacy realm uh, for many years, uh, co-founded the, the New Orleans Women's and Children's Shelter, 
And for a period of time, I was going into high-risk situations to help women uh, remove, you know, to remove them from their home to move somewhere else with the abuser in, in the situation. Um, there is There are means for de-escalation, which are far more effective than the police coming out in terms of, of de-escalating the situation. And when it comes right down to it, at the end of the day, most rape survivors and most domestic violence survivors do not view the police as protection because they do tend to make the situation worse. And in the case of, of rape and sexual assault, you know, I, I have to tell, when I advise clients, I have to tell them directly, this is going to be a terrible experience and it will not result in justice. Do you still want to call the police? I have to lay it out for them and let them know that at the end of the day, only 1% of rapists are ever going to see a day in a jail cell. So do they really want to put themselves through a system that doesn't work? And I would complicate it further by pointing out that two studies have found that nearly 40% of police officers themselves have a record of domestic violence or domestic disturbance. So there's something wrong with who we're attracting to the police force, with the type of power we're giving them, with the ways in which we're socializing them that make them believe that it is okay to engage in, in acts of violence, you know, both in their homes at a much higher rate than the American populace, and then against, you know, black people and brown people and targeting them during basic, you know, routine traffic stops and the like. And I will say, I have been to protests. I was arrested a few times. Um, the first week of the protest a few weeks ago, I have been tear gassed. I have, you know, peacefully protesting, had a rubber bullet sear my upper thigh. Um, I have uh, had pepper spray on me. It is not the, the level of violence that they are comfortable meeting against perfectly peaceful people is unconscionable. And so we have, instead of bullets, how about ballots? I wanted to make sure I got to this before our time is over, Caroline. We have today confirmation and admission from Attorney General Barr that there is no evidence to support the claim that mail-in ballots lead to increased voter fraud. And yet Donald Trump is hell-bent for election, or in his case, re-election, trying to keep people from voting by mail, despite the fact that he and his family do that very thing. Well, indeed. And, it, and in fact, Twitter has now started to finally monitor those factually incorrect statements. I think that Donald Trump is, um, you know, really terrified about having an election where everybody votes. Um, his approval rating is uh, is incredibly low, right? Uh, 47% think he's done okay on the economy, so that he's underwater there. 42% of Americans think he's done okay on COVID-19, so he's underwater there. Um, and and so his his election is definitely at stake. And if all Americans are actually allowed to vote, then Republicans don't do as well in elections because instead of taking account of the fact that the country is becoming a majority-minority country and responding to that with policies that actually serve everyone instead of serving a small number of, of white Americans and really you know, using this like neo-Southern strategy that Nixon used, playing upon all of the, the racism of certain white people in order to win elections, in, instead of taking a better, wider, um, you know, wider W-I-D-E-R, uh, more accommodating strategy, the Republican Party has worked itself into a corner where it's using racism as a wedge and sexism as a wedge and, you know, the, the fear of the shifting social order for certain white people, it's used that. And, and so at the end of the day, um, if everybody votes, they just don't have the votes, and that's what they're afraid of. 
as a footnote of history, you mentioned Richard Nixon. I was flabbergasted when I learned some time ago that though everybody equates Nixon with the so-called Southern strategy of 1968, which was largely responsible in a three-man race that included George Wallace, got him elected president very narrowly. The the kernel for that idea, it turns out, and I'm going back to a book, 1968, written by Lawrence O'Donnell. It turns out that Richard Nixon was sitting in the dressing room waiting to go on the old Mike Douglas show. And the producer came in, a young man full of ideas, and he actually got a few minutes with Mr. Nixon and impressed upon him what turned out to be the outline of the Southern strategy. And this young producer for Mike Douglas turned out to be Roger Ailes. Yep. And I look at that yep. and I go, think of a generation later, two generations later, one conversation in a dressing room of a, an ordinary syndicated talk show. You don't know to what that will lead. Well, and it also points to the fact that it's been a long time strategy, right? It's been something that, that was put together. They had to think about it. They had to plan it. Uh, they executed it with Nixon. They've been executing it in various ways ever since, you know, Willie Horton. Uh, so racist appeals are actually nothing new um, for the GOP. Racist appeals as in playing into the racism of white, you know, white people. Um, but Donald Trump, I, I think the reason that we're seeing uh, the, the largest sustained uh, protests in U.S. history, and they happen to be around race, is because Donald Trump has taken the kind of underlying strategies that Republicans have been using for decades in order to win elections, uh, playing upon, you know, trumping up white support in order by, by making them feel better about essentially being bad people, uh, if we can be that blunt about it. But what he's done is he's, he's taken it out of the shadows and into the open. So it's no longer, you know, this sort of hidden thing. I mean, he was the titular head of, of the, the birther movement, right? A, a racist movement suggesting that uh, our President Obama was actually not born in the U.S., he was endorsed by, by the Klan. David Duke, Richard Spencer, um, said that they, they wanted him in office in 2016. Um, he called Mexicans rapists, the Muslim ban. Um, he continued to, to uh, go after the Central Park uh, boys who were falsely committed, who were falsely convicted even you know, long after we knew that. He referred to African countries as, as, uh, a, you know, as, as S-hole countries. Um, he said a Latinx judge couldn't be impartial because of his ethnicity. Uh, when there was a murderous white supremacist in, in Charlottesville, he said there were very, very fine people on both sides. And then most recently, he retweeted a right-wing nut who went after George Floyd as though he deserved to die. And so I think for a lot of white Americans who are decent people, they're waking up and saying, oh, this Enough. isn't just theoretical. It's happening. And yeah. yeah. Caroline, Caroline Heldman, it is you. always a privilege and a pleasure when you join us on Manson Mitchell. Let's do it again sometime soon. Great to talk with you both. Thank you. All right. Stay tuned. Uh, coming up next is the Christine Upchurch Show, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience and American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. And today we trek out to Long Beach, Washington. That's going to be a good time. Have yourselves a great and safe weekend, everyone.